you would take out your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, today, most of the message will come from uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, glad to have everyone here, uh, either in person or online. I know this is kind of a, a messy Sunday morning, uh, and yet uh, we're here today worshiping the Lord. Uh, so glad you're here, and, uh, and we're going to continue our message series on uh, not only the book of, of Nehemiah, but also on the idea of a vision. Uh, last Sunday morning, one of the things we did was we showed that beautiful video, and, and, we, and it had a number of things in it that helped us to see something about some of the, the things we were excited about last year, and we looked at baptisms. I, I'm not sure we mentioned Rebecca Schofield, and Rebecca was baptized last year as well. And so I always love it when we have more baptisms than we even thought, and so we're just excited about Rebecca and glad for her commitment to Jesus, and that was a wonderful, wonderful thing uh, as, as well. So this uh, past week, I ran across a statement about vision that I want to put up on the board that I think is really good. Uh, James Cousins and Barry Posner said this. They wrote, every organization, every social movement begins with a dream. The dream or the vision is the force that invests the future. Now, I really like that last phrase. And it says something to us about the importance of vision. How that vision has this power or this force that, in fact, it invents the future. I think I might amend that statement just to a little bit to say this vision that's from God, this vision that God has for us is this powerful force that can invent uh, the future. One of the things I love about preaching is I get to learn far more uh, than I'm sure you do. Uh, and uh, I, if I were not a preacher, somebody, uh, people ask me that from time to time, what would you do if you weren't a preacher? I, I probably would be a history teacher because I, I love history. I know some of you right now, your eyes are rolling in your head and you're thinking, oh, history? Who likes history? But I think we can learn so much from history. This past week, I learned a little bit of history that I think is, um, that is really important, that, that says something powerful. I learned about this person by the name of Eric the Red. Eric the Red was a Viking who lived a thousand years ago, and Eric the Red was the one who, who took a group of Vikings and they lived on Greenland. In fact, he was the one who called, named Greenland, Greenland. I'm not sure that picture is Greenland, by the way, so get that out of your mind. That's more beautiful than what Greenland really is. Because you see, Greenland is actually... More, more like an Arctic rock. It's not very green. And so you might be thinking, why did Eric the Red call it Greenland? Well, Eric the Red was a marketing genius. He was trying to get a group of people to go with him to this largely Arctic rock, and people said, what's it called? And he said, well, it's called Greenland. And they just imagined in their mind how beautiful it must have been. The irony is, and I, I have a slide, but I'm not sure we're going to see it today, uh, because we're having some diffi uh, technical difficulties. But I actually have a slide that shows you Greenland and Iceland uh, next to each other. And Iceland is more green than Greenland is. Go figure. And yet Eric the Red was one of these guys, I think, who could sell ice to Eskimos. And so he was this marketing genius, and he convinced a number of people to go with him a thousand years ago to this, this new place called Greenland, and, and the thing you might not know about Vikings is a lot of times when we think of Vikings, we think in terms of, you know, they're kind of, they're, they're, there we go. Now, this actually is a picture of 
of Greenland today. And you can see, uh, you see what it looks like on the, on the screen there. Um, but actually, Vikings, we think of them as seafaring warriors, and sure, that happened, but they saw themselves more as farmers. And so for a number of years, these Vikings were on Greenland, and they developed villages, and they were able to farm a, a little bit, and they made a life on Greenland. And yet, over the years, as Greenland was slowly deforested for homes and pasture land, the wind and the water slowly destroyed the very thin, there's a very thin layer of topsoil, fertile topsoil, and people in Greenland began to starve. Now, fishing would have been a very simple and efficient way to take care of their problem. And yet the thing about these Vikings, these people who lived on Greenland, is, is they had cattle, and they liked cattle, and it was almost like a status symbol for them, and it was taboo to eat fish. So here they were in this very fertile place in terms of food source for fish, and yet they were not going to eat fish. And so they began to slowly starve to death. And after 450 years, they vanished. And people wonder, what, what happened? Um, this week I, I heard about a book called Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed by Jared Diamond. And he says this, he says when societies fail, it's typically not to some cataclysmic event, but to something much simpler. Societies fail because they turn inward, they perpetuate their known cultural model at all costs, not willing to change, and they merely hold on and survive. That's what happened to the Vikings in Greenland. And so archaeologists have gone on to Greenland and they discovered that as they looked through the debris on ancient Greenland, they found animal bones left in the debris, and they even found the bones of newborn calves, meaning that the Vikings in that final hard winter had given up on their future. And as I read that story this week, I thought to myself, that's what some churches do. That's what some people do. Just kind of give up on their future. And yet, as we have a vision, as we look ahead, it has a powerful impact on the here and now. Now, last Sunday morning, we looked at Andy Stanley's definition of vision, and he defines vision this way. Vision is a divine, divinely given picture of what could be and should be. Vision is visual. We need to be able to see it. And it's what could be. It's, it's not just pie in the sky. It is something that could happen, and it's something that should be. There's kind of a, a moral imperative to it. And that brings us again to this book we call Nehemiah. And as I said, we're in Nehemiah chapter 2 today. And today we see that the people of God are at a very low, low point. We talked a little bit about that last Sunday morning. You see, they had given up on their future, but God had not given up on the people of God. And God begins to work in the heart of Nehemiah and, and begin to build this, this, envision, uh, this vision. 
The people of God may have given up on their future. They may have been wondering, what's, what's next? What's, what's ahead for us? And, and maybe you find yourself that, in that place today. Maybe some of you today are wondering about your marriage. Have you given up on a future vision for your marriage or maybe your career or your life? Or maybe we wonder more broadly, what about the future of our movement or the future of our, of our church? Well, here's what I know. Gospel people are inherently hopeful people. I'm not saying they're inherently positive. I'm saying gospel people are inherently hopeful people. And, and hope is a word that means confident expectation. We're hopeful people because, friends, we're resurrection people. We believe Jesus, by the power of, of God, conquered death. And we believe this. We believe we have a beautiful future because we have a powerful God. Amen? And so that's what we want to talk about. Now, you know by this time in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, that the, the southern kingdom had been allowed to go in or had gone into Babylonian captivity, and now a remnant had been able to stream back down into Israel, back down into to Jerusalem. They re rebuilt the temple. Things were looking good, but the walls were down for, for a, a number of years, for a lot of years. And Nehemiah gets word that the things weren't going well in, in, his, in his homeland, where, where, where his family and his roots were. And so Nehemiah's heart is grieved. We began a series last Sunday morning on vision, calling, uh, vision called Building a Future with God, and we learned a lot of important things. We, we said that vision begins at a point of concern. It's there's some sort of issue or problem. And we think, what is God calling us to do? And this concern was in Nehemiah's heart. It began to grow. We, we also said that vision takes time. The vision is like a little seed that begins to grow in our heart. It, it, takes, it germinates and takes root. And we also said that, that as we think about vision, it's important to, to understand there's a tight connection between vision and prayer. Because when we talk about vision, we're talking about God's picture of this dynamic future, God's, God's picture of, of things down the, down the road. And so as you read through the book of Nehemiah, you'll see there's a lot of prayers there. In Nehemiah chapter 1, there's this prayer. Uh, we'll see today as we work through Nehemiah chapter 2 in just a moment, we'll see that Nehemiah prays even before he utters words to the king, uh, to the king, king Artaxerxes. But through, all through the book of Nehemiah, we see him praying. There are 12 prayers mentioned in this somewhat immediate, in this, in this book. We learned a lot last week. Well, today, here's what we want to really learn. Here's what we're going to say. Really one big idea, and it's this. It's what God, and you can put this on the screen, what God originates, God orchestrates. And so as we think about vision today, we want to know, say when God begins to grow this vision in our hearts, um, what he originates, God will orchestrate. And so now today, after months of praying and fasting, it had been something like four months, there's this opportunity that's presented to Nehemiah where this vision that God is birthing in his heart looks like it might become a reality. Now, when Nehemiah thought about rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, um, 
This must have been a daunting task to, to him. Because think about all the barriers that stood between him and this vision becoming a reality. On the one hand, there's this, this daunting, ta- this, this barrier of, of distance. Uh, Nehemiah gets this vision and this word from Israel. This, God begins to grow this, is, uh, this vision in his heart. Uh, and when he gets that, he is in Susa, the citadel. He's in Persia. He's in ancient Iran or, or present-day Iran. And so it's something like 900 miles from Iran to Jerusalem. And so he must have thought to himself, how can he lead this project of rebuilding walls when, when he lives in, in Persia? We also learned, we also see that he didn't have the freedom and the authority to just go to Jerusalem. And this must have seemed like a barrier to him. He couldn't just travel. Understand, he was, he was in relationship or had a job with the king, with Artaxerxes. At the end of Nehemiah chapter 1, we learned that Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. So understand, Nehemiah is his high-ranking official. He had an important job. The king trusted Nehemiah. Like the name suggests, the cupbearer, he brought the cup of wine into the king. He oftentimes would taste the wine before the king would taste it, drink it, because, you know, in the ancient world, there were some people who didn't like the king. Some people wanted to kill the king. And so you can see how important this this role was. And so he couldn't just say to the king, I, I want to go back home, king, because I, I have this task to do. Kings are not prone to let important people go. Odd thing back then is when a, a king's had a habit of killing employees who didn't seem to be loyal to them. And so this was a, 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 a must have seemed like a barrier to, to Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah, as he thought, as he prayed and fasted, He must have thought, how can this vision that God has given me, how can this occur? It seems impossible. This will never come about. And I don't know about you today, but maybe God is putting a vision in your heart. Maybe God is, there's a point of concern. There's something you want to do. You have a passionate about something. And at this point, it might seem to you like it's impossible. There are too many barriers. You don't have the money or the time or the training. Other people won't be excited about it. Other people might not understand your concern, your vision. And so you might be in the similar place that Nehemiah is today. But remember, what God originates, God orchestrates. God is not only the God of the what, but God, he's the God of the how. And so Nehemiah in chapter 2 there's this wonderful opportunity that's presented to him. Now, by the time we come to Nehemiah chapter 2, we find that it's in the month of Nisan, not, not the vehicle, it's the month. This would have been March or April. So about in November or December, Nehemiah gets word that his people are struggling back in Jerusalem. The walls are still down. There's despair. And now it's March or April. And, and Nehemiah up to this point, has been keeping his his emotions in check. This was something that Nehemiah felt passionately about, deeply about. And so he goes in to the king, and for the first time, 
when the king sees him, the king sees that, that he's emotional, that, that, that something's wrong with Nehemiah. And so here's what the verse says why, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 2. The king says, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And so he wants to know what's going on with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says next that he was afraid. Now, I think one of the things we see in, in this leader is the fact that he had a lot of courage. You know, uh, courage is not the absence of fear. As you've heard before, courage is when we act in spite of our fears. Why would Nehemiah be afraid? It's God has given him this, this vision, and now the king looks at him, and he looks down, and he knows that, and he asks, what's going on? Will Nehemiah be honest? And we know he might lose his job, or even worse still, Nehemiah might lose his life if he's honest with the king. And so he was very much afraid. And what does Nehemiah do? Well, we find that in just a moment, Nehemiah is, in fact, going to be, to be honest. He begins to tell the king about what's happened to Jerusalem and how the walls are still down. And so then the king asks an important question. The king says to him, what is it you want? And what would he say? Now, I think this question that the king asks Nehemiah is an answer to prayer. You remember, Nehemiah had prayed earlier, back in Nehemiah chapter 1. And one of the things that Nehemiah said in that prayer was this. He said, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. As we think about this vision that was put on Nehemiah's heart, it was more than just walls. He was passionate about his people, certainly. He wanted them to be protected. But even more than that, he was passionate about God. And this was an affront to a holy God that the city of, of David, that Jerusalem was, the walls around the city were still in, in disrepair. For a long time, though they rebuilt the temple, the walls were still down. And because Nehemiah revered the name of God, God began to put a, a passion on his heart. And so now the question is asked, what is it that you want? And what Nehemiah does next is amazing. Because Nehemiah doesn't immediately speak. Nehemiah doesn't do something. No, what this passage of Scripture says to us, it says this, Then I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't think Nehemiah prayed audibly. Oh, he had already been praying in this, this meeting, I think, which was orchestrated by God, was an answer to Nehemiah's prayer. Now he says, what is it that you want? And Nehemiah prays. Before he ever says anything, he speaks to God. I don't know what he asked for. Did he say, God, would you give me wisdom? God, would you give me the words to say? Father, would you give me boldness? Because right now I'm feeling timid as I'm standing in front of the most powerful man on the earth at this time, Artaxerxes. We don't know what he asks. But we know he prays, and then he speaks. And what I think we learn from this, we learn from this great leader, Nehemiah, is that we, we must never lose our dependence on God. Nehemiah was incredibly 
dependent on the Lord. Even though there was this amazing opportunity staring him in the face to finally say, King, here's what I need. Here's what I want. Instead of saying that, the first thing he does is he speaks to the King of Kings. The first thing he does is he speaks to Almighty God. You see, I think certainly this is important as it relates to vision. You know, we, we have to be careful as churches and church leaders and members. So often it's easy for us to sort of make plans and just sort of go on with our plans without really, without really thinking about God, without really praying. I know that sounds odd to us, but every church leader I know will talk to you about times when it seems like we spent more time organizing than agonizing. We spent more time talking about, you know, what we think we should do rather than talking to God and listen to him as he leads us. And, and so I learned something from Nehemiah. It would have been so tempting. He says, what is it that you want? It had been easy for Nehemiah just to say. And yet Nehemiah prays. What if we lived our lives this way? I know so often, um, you know, maybe we get real focused and open with God whenever things go bad in our life, whenever we're experiencing a health crisis or something, we, then we want everybody to pray and we want to fast and all the rest. But what if we just approach life this way? You know, it's amazing. I, um, I found that when I approach the Bible in this, if, if I speak to God before I ever open the pages of the Bible, I found that it's amazing what, what God begins to show, show us. You know, so oftentimes uh, there have been seasons in my life where I've been, you know, very technical about sermon preparation. I mean, you know, you're, you're looking at the Greek and you're trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's this really saying and what's the theology of this or that. And, and you spend a lot of time in language studying, a lot of time in, you know, with the text, reading it and tearing it. And all that's important. But there's a certain spirituality to prayer. What if I, you know, I found best sermons come and to me. When before I ever open the Bible, I'm saying, God, would you open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word? God, would you give me an open heart that I might see what it is you want to say to me? What if we lived our lives that way? I think we learned that from Nehemiah. Some of you this week might have a, a big meeting that, that may be at work. What if before you ever went to that meeting, you're saying, God, would you just give me insight here? Would you give me wisdom that I'll have the right words to say, that I'll be the kind of leader you're calling me to be? What if we, we approached our parenting this way? You know, I'm all for the latest books and seminars and all the rest, and we, we have a lot of that going on here. But what if before we looked at any of that, we said, God, would you just give, give me wisdom? I, I want to be the kind of, of dad you wish for me to be. I want to be the kind of mother you're calling me to be. We learned that, I think, from Nehemiah. But here's the thing about Nehemiah. He was dependent on God, and then he stepped out boldly by faith. I love that move that we, we see next. You see, sometimes we think, well, well, if we're going to depend on God, then we're just going to, you know, there, there's, we don't need to worry about preparation or planning or any of the rest. I think Nehemiah prepared and planned. I think he prepared for this conversation he was going to have with the king a hundred times. But he didn't trust the planning. He trusted God. And then finally, it's time for Nehemiah to speak. And I think he made plans and preparations because of this. As you read Nehemiah chapter 2, it wasn't like when the king said, so what is it that you want? He didn't go, well, uh, I, you know, I, uh, let me think about it. Let me get back to you. He didn't say that at all. 
He's so specific about what he said. He said, well, I'll need to be gone a certain amount of time. I, uh, I, I need safe passage. Would you write, make sure that when I'm traveling through the trans-Euphrates, would you make sure that you give me a, a letter so that I'm not killed? And, and I also, before I go, I would like to speak with so-and-so who's in charge of, uh, of the, all the timber because I'll need some supplies as we make it down to Jerusalem, as we rebuild these walls that have been burned by fire. I mean, he knew exactly what he wanted and needed. Why is that? It's because he'd been thinking and praying and speaking to God. He had been making prayers and plans. So understand, good leaders, and I think this book helps us to learn something about vision because that's a leadership issue, but I also think it helps us to learn something about what it means to, to be a good leader. And this good leader, he was the spiritual leader. He was dependent on God, but he also made plans and preparations. Notice how this concludes, where it says, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. I love his humility. He doesn't give credit to the king. He gives credit to the king of kings. He doesn't take credit because of his planning and his preparation and his forethought and his wisdom. He gives credit to God. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, what happened? The king granted my requests. Remember, what God originates well, God will orchestrate. And I believe that God has a beautiful vision, not only for your life, but I believe God has a beautiful vision for our church. I love the story that I heard that uh, happened not long after uh, I moved here. I started learning more about College Hills and the great history and what had occurred here. Uh, one day, a um, little over 20 years ago, because this year we celebrate 20 years in this building, which is, which is beautiful. A little over 20 years ago, Johnny Markham was driving down Leeville Pike. There was no uh, uh, Hartman exit at this point. This was all just a bunch of, of land and farms, not a bunch of churches out here. He's driving down, the, down Leeville Pike, and he sees a sign about an auction that's going to happen on Saturday. I think this was a Monday or a Tuesday. Johnny goes back and talks to some of the elders, and the elders meet together on Wednesday night, and they begin to pray about this auction of land. They were in a church downtown, College Street Church, had grown out of space. They met together and prayed on a Wednesday. I think when I hear this story told, the amazing thing to me is, and, uh, and, and you know, and I think elders in the room would concur with this, elders rarely don't get in a very big hurry. Have y'all noticed that elders don't get in a big hurry? They got in a big hurry that night. They met and prayed, and by Saturday, two elders were standing in an open field with a crowd, and they were, they were bidding on this auction for three parcels of land. They got the first parcel. I think they were bidding against some sort of business that was trying to get the second parcel. And then because this is the South, I think, the business finds out it's a church they're bidding against. So what does the business do? Steps back and says, you, you can have it. They got the second parcel. Then they got the third parcel. Because of that vision, 20 years later, we're in this beautiful facility. Because of that vision, hundreds 
of young men and women and older men and women were baptized right here. Because of that vision, many, many couples have stood right down there and made promises to love, honor, and obey and cherish one another until death would separate them. Because of that vision, the gospel has been preached right here to literally thousands of men and women. Because of that vision, there have been people who've come down here and, and their lives are changed. They have better marriages and they're better parents and their lives are focused on Jesus. Because of that vision, this facility is used about seven days a week. With it's filled with organizations that have, are like-minded that are aligned with our values and vision and use this facility because of vision. What I know is the healthy, dynamic vision really can, as we said a moment ago, invent such a beautiful future. Now here's the thing. I don't know what God's vision is for you personally. But I know what part of it is. Part of God's vision for you personally is that you would follow him, that you would respond to him and be baptized in his name and have your sins washed away and the Holy Spirit will come and live in your life and you'll have this future trajectory where it's not about you, but it's about blessing and serving others. And I'm wondering if that's your vision for your life. Here's the thing I know. When we get in sync with God's vision, oh, it's a beautiful thing. Today, if you have a need, we can help you with. If, if you feel like you're out of sync with God's vision for your personal life, or if today you need to become a Christian, or if you have any other need, we can pray with you about. Come down front while, I, uh, while we stand up and sing this song.